Welcome to the Atlantic Baptist Church Podcast. Visit our new website at AtlanticBC.org. Or check us out on Facebook for the latest updates. Now, here's Pastor Carlos. So we're going to continue with the prologue, chapter 1, and look at these snapshots which show the initial response of the disciples. And as we look at these responses, just let me make a quick note. They're not so concerned about each person that we're talking about. They are primarily concerned, the focus is on Jesus himself. And so these are divinely captured images for us to reflect on and to respond on as well. Now, like we did last week, we showed a video. And this is a film of the Gospel of John. And actually, it's a, in a pre-release article that Christianity Today wrote. This was back in 2003. The movie was released in 2004. They said this, that it is the best portrayal of Jesus ever offered in a feature-length film. And the reason they say that, it, it, it captures the heart of who Christ is, and it goes verse by verse through the entire Gospel of John. Now, at the end of our series, we're, we want to show the entire movie. It's about three hours long, and we're not going to show it in church, but another time, we're going to show the entire film for you to come and see the entire um, Gospel of John portrayed in a powerful, um, visual way. But today, we're just going to look at the first chapter, and it's just going to show you just a few verses of the, of the section we're going to talk about. It's going to show you chapter 1, verses 19 through 31.
Sorry, we're going to stop there. I know you're like, oh man, that's getting good. It is a great film. It really is. And I look forward to when we can show the whole thing because it, it really does put a great uh, visual image to what it was like and what was happening there. Uh, and what we see here, what you saw here, um, is the testimony of John the Baptist. Now, I just want to make a quick note because I got confused as a young believer on this. There's a di distinction between John the Baptist and John the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel. And I got confused on this early on. So just to make the distinction... But the rest of this chapter that we're going to look at, chapter 1, we're going to divide into four snapshots. What you saw was the first one, part of the, fir the first one, and then part of the second. Um, but the way we're going to distinguish the four snapshots, if you have your Bible, is there's a, a word saying says, the next day. And that will indicate that there's a new picture we're going to look at. Well, let's look at just the first picture. Um, and this is the testimony of John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he grows in popularity so much so that the religious leaders of the day send out a delegation to say, who are you? They want to know, who are, who, who are you? Because Matthew records in, in his gospel, in chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he says, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region of the Jordan were going out to see him, that is John the Baptist, and they were, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So all these people are coming out to see John the Baptist. And he's growing in popularity, and the religious leaders go, we've got to find out who this guy is. And then you notice how he responds. He says, he confessed, he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He confessed, he did not deny, he confessed, I am not the Christ. When they ask him, who are you? He makes it very clear. He doesn't avoid the question. He doesn't water down the question. He doesn't deflect the question. He says, I'm not the one you are looking for. Have you ever heard a, a politician, when someone comes and uh, challenges their position of influence, and they ask them one of those tough questions, you know, you know how they respond? They dodge the question. They talk about anything else, everything else, but the question at hand. And sometimes you'll get people go, can you answer the question? And then they don't. They keep going on about something else. John the Baptist here doesn't do any of that. He says, I tell you truly, I'm confessing, I'm not going to deny, so that you will know I am not the Christ. And then they say, well, if you're not the Christ, then are you Elijah? Which seems almost like a strange question. To follow up, you're not the Christ, and are you Elijah? Why would, he ask, why, would the, why would they ask such a strange question? Well, to understand that if you went to the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, and then you looked at the very last verse in Malachi, there's this prophecy. And the prophecy says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. So here's what they were expecting. Before the day of the Lord, before the Messiah, the Christ comes, Elijah the prophet was going to return. You remember Elijah the prophet was taken up to heaven on a fiery chariot. He is only one of two people in the Bible that says they did not experience death. Enoch in Genesis and Elijah. And so they had this, um, this idea, this notion that Elijah was going to return. And they asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah returned? And, El and John the Baptist goes, no, I am not Elijah in person. 
Now, if you, if you read the New Testament and you read the accounts of the four Gospels, there's a little discrepancy. And people like to point this out and say, well, he says no, but Jesus says yes. If you read what it says in Matthew 11, verses 13 and 14, Jesus is saying, for all the prophets and the law prophesies until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, John the Baptist said, no, I'm not Elijah. And Jesus goes, he is Elijah who is to come. Well, how do we understand that then? Well, the best way to understand scripture is to interpret it with scripture. So let's look at one more passage. And that passage is found in the beginning of Luke. Remember, we just did the Christmas narrative. And remember, in the Christmas narrative of Luke, there's uh, Zechariah, who is the father of John the Baptist. And an angel visits Zechariah when he's in the temple. And this is what the angel tells Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. And he will go before him, that is Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So who is John the Baptist? John the Baptist is not Elijah come back. He is not Elijah come back from his blazing exit when he was taken to heaven on the flaming chariot. John the Baptist comes in the power and the spirit of Elijah. And so John the Baptist could easily say, I'm not Elijah, come back. And Jesus would go, he is a type of Elijah to come back. But what John the Baptist is doing here is he, he knows that he doesn't want to draw attention to himself. He's not trying to draw fame to himself. And so the, the delegation asks another question. Well, then, if you're not Christ, if you're not Elijah, are you the prophet? Now, notice he didn't say a prophet. It's the prophet. Who is the prophet that they're inquiring about? For this, you have to go all the way back to Deuteronomy 18. All the way back to Deuteronomy 18 with Moses. And the Lord says this to Moses, I will raise up, Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So they're saying, are you this prophet that Moses said is going to come? Someone who is greater than Moses. And John the Baptist answers again, no. Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Well, the delegation doesn't like these answers. So the delegation says, well, then who are you? Who do you say you are? Tell us something about yourself. And notice what John the Baptist says. He quotes Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verse 3. I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. John the Baptist doesn't make a bunch of um, resume and he puts it out for them and go, let me tell you who I am. Let me tell you about my miracle birth. Let me tell you about all this I'm doing. He says simply, I am a voice and I'm the one calling out, make way, make a straight path. Away for the Lord. What does that mean? It's, it, it's, it's rooted in the, in the Old Testament in Isaiah. In Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, you can think of it like the, the whole Bible. And you know in the Old Testament, there's 39 books. And in the New Testament, there's 27 books. And in, the, uh, in Isaiah, there's 66 books, just like the Bible. And the first part of Isaiah is his pronouncing that uh, God's justice is going to come and take the people into captivity. 
because they have rebelled against him. But then there's a change in chapter 40. And we start to get the promises that they're not going to be held in captivity forever. That they're going to get brought back to Jerusalem. And when they're getting going to be brought back to Jerusalem, they said there's going to be one calling out in the de- desert, the wilderness, the area that separates where they are in captivity to where Jerusalem is. They're going to be calling out saying, make straight roads, because all the people who are in captivity are going to come back to Jerusalem. So let's make roads, let's knock down mountains, let's raise up valleys, let's make straight roads, because everyone's coming back to Jerusalem. And that's a great picture, because that's what happened that they were actually released from captivity and they came back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple. But there's a greater meaning still. And the greater meaning is when Christ comes, he is going to bring us not to just a physical Jerusalem, but to the heavenly Jerusalem. That he is going to make straight paths for us. That we might be in the city, the true city of the Lord. And so John the Baptist says, this is who I am. I am one calling, saying, the Lord has come, and we need to make straight paths. So they're asking John the Baptist, who are you? And he answers, I'm not the one you're looking for. There is someone who is greater than me. I am simply the voice. So the delegation then asked one other question. Then what authority do you have to baptize? You're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, and you're not the prophet. Who has given you the right to baptize? And in verse 26 and 27, John answers this way. I baptize with water, but among you stands someone who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Again, John is taking the question and he's pointing it towards Jesus. And he says, let me tell you about my authority. My authority does not compare to the one I'm pointing you to. During the day, John had disciples, John the Baptist had disciples, and the disciple would do whatever the master asked him to, except for one thing. They would not take off their sandal. That was reserved for slaves. And what John the Baptist is doing here is he's saying, in a, in a great comparison, He's saying, compared to the one I'm pointing to, I'm not a, I can't compare myself as a disciple. I can't compare myself as a slave. I am lower than a slave in comparison. That's how great this person is. And so here's the first point, the first picture of discipleship that we see from how John the Baptist answers these questions. It starts with knowing who we are. We are not the man. We are not the hero. We are not the rescuer. You know, deep down inside, all of us want to come to the rescue of those we love, and that's a good thing. But there's there's a difficulty, there's a challenge we face, and that is we want to be the solution. We want to be the rescuer. We want to be the hero. But that position is reserved for one person and one person only. What people ultimately need is not our counsel. They don't need our rescuing. What they ultimately need is Jesus. Matthew says, For what what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? 
You know, you can provide people with everything to the best of your abilities. As a dad, as a, as a man, I want to be the rescuer for my family. I want to, I want to be there and I want, I want to be the hero of my family. But ultimately, I'm not. Moms, you want to guard your children. Anybody mess with your children? They're messing with mom. Here comes the wrath of mom, right? But ultimately, you are not the rescuer. Now, we can do these things, and we can counsel, we can comfort, but the greatest thing we need to do is to say to people, we are not the one you are looking for, ultimately. And that's the first concept, the first principle pictured of, picture of discipleship. We need to recognize the great fact that we are not the one. There is someone greater than us that we need to point people to. Pastor James McDonald says it this way, the biggest obstacle in making Christ magnificent is the refusal to make ourselves small. So the first principle, John says it later on in the gospel very clearly in chapter 3, verse 30. He must increase. I must decrease. So then the second picture, which is noted by the next day. John the Baptist is, is there with two of his disciples, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now here's something that we see in this Gospel of John in this first chapter. There's more designations of Jesus in chapter 1 of John than any place else in the Bible. He is called the Messiah in verse 20 and in verse uh, 41. The prophet in verse 21. Jesus in verse 29. The Lamb of God in 29 and 36. The one who baptizes with the Spirit in verse 33. The Son or Chosen One of God in verse 34 and 49. Rabbi, Teacher, Christ, Anointed One, Son of Joseph, Nazarene, King of Israel, Son of Man. That's all in chapter 1 and most of it is after chapter, verse 19. And so what do we see here that John the Baptist is doing? And, the, and John, the author of this, is doing? He's saying if we are not the one who is the one, he says this is the one I'm talking about. He is the one. If we look at just what John the Baptist says, he is the Lamb of God. You know, that designation of Jesus is only found in John's writing, both in his gospel and in the book of Revelation. That title, Lamb of God, is found nowhere else in Scripture. Now, while the book of Acts and Peter both talk about Jesus as a sacrificial lamb, they don't give him the actual designation, Lamb of God. And in the Old Testament, it doesn't appear anywhere. Which makes some people think, well, how is John saying this? What, where is he getting this information? What does it mean? And so some scholars come up with these different ideas, and one actually says that there is an uh, extra-biblical literature, early Jewish writing, that talk about an apocalyptic lamb who is like this warrior lamb. And I think the answer is much easier than that. If you look back in Genesis 22, a famous narrative, Father Abraham, son Isaac, God calls him to go sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. And Abraham goes and obeys. And as they are going up to the mountain with his son Isaac, Isaac asks the question, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham says, God will provide uh, for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God will provide the lamb. And if you know the narrative, they're up there on the mountain and Abraham is getting ready to sacrifice and the angel of the Lord calls out and says, Stop! Do not harm him. 
And as Abraham looks up, he sees there's a ram, which is a lamb is a baby sheep, and a ram is a male sheep with horns, and it's caught in a thicket. And that is the sacrifice. There is a substitute. If we go on, and we see what happens with Moses, one of the famous narratives in the Old Testament, the Exodus and the Passover, the ten plagues. Remember the last plague, the worst plague, the plague of death? What does God instruct the Israelites to do, the Hebrews to do? Sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost. And then that plague of death passes over. And then they celebrate Passover from generation to generation. And that's where we get the Lord's Supper because on the last Passover, the Lord initiated the new covenant, which is what we celebrate. There is the substitute lamb that passes the plague of death, the death of plague of death passes over. If you go a little further, Isaiah. John's already mentioned, the Baptist already mentioned Isaiah, but if you go further to Isaiah 53, what do we have the picture of? The suffering servant. And the suffering servant, what does it say? In verse 6 it says, all like sheep we have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity, the sin of us all. But then it goes on to verse 7. Speaking of this Lamb of God, he has laid on him the Lamb of God. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he has has opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before the shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth, Isaiah 53, 7. And so even though the lamb of God is not um, written out exactly in the Old Testament, the imagery of a lamb of God being the sacrifice, the substitute, is throughout the Old Testament. And John the Baptist is saying, this is the Lamb of God. All that you saw before, you know Father Abraham and Isaac, you know Moses and the great Exodus, you know Isaiah, the great prophet. All of that points to he who is coming. He is the true Lamb of God. Which is why we point people to Jesus. Because ultimately, and our greatest need is for Jesus to be our substitute, to take on our sin, because we cannot. And he does that. Our greatest need is to have that barrier between us and God removed, which is there by sin. And there's no way we could do that. But Jesus did. And so we point people to this Lamb of God who was, who took away our sin. So the second picture the principle in discipleship. The first is recognize who we are. The second is we need to point to the greatness of Jesus. That's what discipleship is about. Point to the greatness of Jesus. The third picture, the third, the next day. Now here's what we start to see in this next day. We're going to see a pattern. And I'll go through this a little quickly. They see... John the Baptist, the disciples, and they say, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples who were there heard this, and then they started to follow Jesus. Now here's something interesting to note. There's two disciples. One is named Andrew. The other is not named. He remains nameless. Most scholars believe that is John, the author of the gospel. John, the author of the gospel, was a disciple of John the Baptist before he became a disciple of Jesus which highlights the fact that John's gospel is focused on who Jesus is and what he is doing and the response to him. It focuses on um, our, our response to Jesus. Because John, the author of the gospel, writes less 
than all the other three Gospels about John the Baptist. He knows what his first teacher told him. It's all about Jesus. And so he follows, the two follow Jesus. They hear, and then they start following. Jesus sees them following. He turns around and goes, what are you seeking? Which is a, a simple question. But as John does, the, the gospel does, so often is he takes simple things and has deep, profound meaning. It's not just, what are you seeking? It is, why are you seeking me? What do you believe I can do for you? What are you pursuing in life? And how do I fit in? That's what's all implied of, why are you seeking me? And so first we see this idea that you hear about Jesus. Then you see that there's a seeking of Jesus. And then the third part of this pattern shown in this picture is Jesus' invitation. Well, come and see. Which we'll see is another thing that's over and over in the Gospel of John. Come and see. Come and see. That is, come and experience Christ for yourself. Because it's not enough just to hear about Jesus by others. It's not enough to have a one-time church experience. Jesus gives the invitation that we might know him personally. And then we see then verse 39, it says they stayed with him. And again, this stayed is a, is a simple thing, but it has a profound um, implication to it. They remained with Jesus. They remained with him for a day, but we know the rest of the story. It's not just for the day. They remained with him for his rest of his earthly ministry. They, were, they saw him at his ascension. And then as Jesus departed, he gave him his spirit. And then we can say, where are Andrew and John now? They're in the presence of Jesus. They stayed with him. They remained. They abided. And so we see that's not just hearing about Jesus. It's not just seeking Jesus. It's not just coming and seeing for yourself. But when we follow Jesus, then there is an abiding and staying with Jesus. And the final thing in this pattern, in this picture is in verse 41, Andrew went and found his brother Simon Peter and brought him to Jesus. If we're disciples, we hear, we seek, we experience, we remain, but that's not it. We go and bring others. That is a key component to discipleship. And Jesus identifies Peter personally. You're the son of John. But then he says, I'm going to call you Cephas the Rock. It's not just that Jesus, I know him personally, but Jesus goes, I know what I'm calling you to. I know what I'm going to do in your life. What I'm going to make of you, Peter. And so the third picture of discipleship we see is there's a pattern of discipleship that we must follow. And finally, finally, the fourth picture, and we'll, this one repeats the cycle, but there's two things that are added differently at this one. First, we see that um, as he sees, he sees Philip. He sees Nathaniel, sorry, under a fig tree. They go and find Nathaniel and they bring him to Jesus. 
And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. And this makes Nathaniel amazed. Here's the amazing thing about discipleship. Jesus is seeking you ever before you seek him. Jesus is pursuing you ever ever before you pursue him. That's the testimony of scripture. Our God is a pursuing God, a relentless pursuing God. He has created you. He knows you intimately. And even though we live in rebellion against him and turn our back often to him, he continues to pursue. He is faithful when we are not. And he pursues us, and he knows us, and he seeks us ever before we have seen him. But the second thing that happens differently here is what happens at the very end. Jesus answers him in verse 50. Because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus makes uh, another um, allusion to the Old Testament. He first calls Nathanael. He says, you're an Israelite, Israelite without deceit. Now remember, the name Israel comes from when God wrestled with Jacob, and he changed his name to Israel. Jacob actually means deceiver, and God changed him. And so then when he sees Nathanael, he's going, you're not like Jacob, a deceiver. You're like someone who has already sought God. You are Israel. There's no deceit in you. And then remember Jacob, when uh, he was out in the wilderness, he had this vision, this dream, Jacob's ladder, uh, angels ascending and descending. And he's named that place Bethel. And Bethel means the house of God in Hebrew. And so Jesus is saying here to Nathanael, because I saw you and I say I know you, you're amazed, but you're going to see greater things. You're going to see angels ascending and descending, not in the place of Bethel, but on the Son of Man, which means Jesus is the true Bethel. Jesus is the true house of God. If you want to know what God is like, we look at the life of Jesus. And he says, I'm going to show you greater things because I am the house of God. I am God. Discipleship. This last picture not only repeats the pattern, but it says there's more to see of Jesus. This is just the beginning. Warren Warren, uh, Wearsby says this, God's people don't live on explanations. They live on promises. It's a promise of God that we will see and experience greater things as we grow in our relationship with God. The promises of God. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, All the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. That is why through him we utter our amen for the glory of God. We are going to experience greater things as we walk with Christ in discipleship. So what does real discipleship look like in these pictures we see? We recognize who we are. We acknowledge the greatness of Jesus. We experience Christ for ourselves. We are remaining with him and we introduce others to him. And we recognize this is just the beginning. The call to believe and the call to discipleship is not simply a one-time event. It is not like your trip to the Grand Canyon where you go and you see this majestic view and you take a photograph and you say that was great and then you come back 
and has nothing to do with your life today. It is the call to know Christ daily. It is the call to say, I'm going to put Christ in the driver's seat of my life on this road trip journey that we have. And he's going to take me places that reveal more and more the glory of God. There was a famous conductor, Arturo Toscanani. He was an Italian conductor who was considered one of the greatest conductors in the 19th and 20th century. He had this um, intensity about him. He was a perfectionist. He had a, a, a photographic memory. And so when he was conducting an orchestra, many people came out to see him. And as the story goes, he was conducting this one night, and they were playing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And after they played this marvelous rendition of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the audience got up and erupted in a, in a roar of applause that just seemed to never die down. And um, Tuscanani would bow and bow, and then he'd point to the, the orchestra, and they would bow and bow. And then as, the, as it finally started to die down, Tuscanani leaned forward to his musicians and said in a loud, enunciated whisper, I am nothing, which was astonishing for a man of his fame. But then he continued, and he said to his musicians, you are nothing. Then he added, Beethoven is everything, everything, everything. You see what Tuscanani knew was, without Beethoven, they would have had no song to play. There would have been no applause. They were just following what he had already done. And this is true of discipleship. Jesus is the author of life. He is the great composer, not just conductor. And without him, we are nothing. You are nothing. I am nothing. But with Jesus, we have everything. 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 And so we recognize that in him, through him, by him, we will not only see amazing things, but we will experience great things the resurrection power of Christ in our lives. You see, Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith, and he calls us to join him in his great symphony that plays the music that you were created to play so that the world may hear the beautiful song of the gospel. That's what discipleship is about. It's not about us. It is all about Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we acknowledge that so often and in so many ways we turn. We turn from you and we go our own way. We desire to be lifted up. We desire to be heroes. We desire to be... Um, those who save people. But Lord, we know ultimately what 
What the world needs most is you. So, Father, I pray that we would capture this message from the Gospel of John, that we would recognize who we are, that we would respond to people when they come to us and say, we are not it. No, no, no. We are not the one you are looking for. Lord, may, us, may we point people towards you, to your greatness, your glory, who you are, what you've done for us. And in doing so, may we follow this pattern you have laid out in Scripture. May we bring others to you, that they may see and experience greater things. So, Father, now as we continue to worship just a little while longer, may your spirit move in this place. May it change lives. May it direct our hearts and our attentions back towards you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.